2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read the first nine verses. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, See that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich." Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. This is an extraordinary passage of scripture to think on. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the manner of ministering unto those who are in the church of need. And he speaks to the Corinthians particularly about the churches in Macedonia who though they were in poverty loved the Lord, his work, and the Apostle Paul here to such an extent that they entreated him, meaning that they asked him fervently that they would accept that which was sacrifice on their part, that was given out of utter poverty, that those in need might have something also. Tremendous recollection of their love commendation of their spirit he says in verse 5 the reason why they did this is that they first gave themselves to the Lord and as they had given themselves to the Lord then they gave themselves to the work of God and the people of God elsewhere and Paul is admonishing the Corinthians that they would be of the same mind and same heart reminding them then in verse 9 the Lord Jesus gave up his glory and what he had that he might come and be made poor for their sakes to be made rich. That's the context for what we're speaking on this morning. And I want us to think about this 
great work of the Lord Jesus, what I'm calling the great transaction. And I want us to think about that for a moment together and what he did and what that does for us. But before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now I pray that you will bless the word of God. I pray that you will use it for Jesus' sake in our hearts. Lord, first to open our hearts. For we believe the word of God is quick and powerful. It is the power of God. So, Lord, we pray that you use it to speak to our hearts. Lord, that thou will do a work within us that perhaps we didn't even look for you to do when we came in the door today. We pray that you will then allow the word of God to teach us that we might understand what the mind of God is. And then we would pray, O God, that you would use the word of God to mold us and correct us, to make us to be vessels fit for the master's use. We pray that as we think upon the Lord Jesus, that you would minister to us. Lord, do your work in this place. Bring faith. Lord, bring grace. May the mercy of God be our portion this day. When I pray to this end that you will help me as your servant. Pray that you will bless my thoughts with the helping of the Spirit. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We are, in verse 9, looking at what must be seen as a grand statement that holds within it the truest beauty of the gospel. Here's the gospel, I say, presented to us in a wonderful way. In these words, in this place, in this context, Paul reflects on the greatest of all motivations for showing forth the love of Christ to our brothers and sisters. That motivation is this. Christ loved me. Christ loved me. Now I'm telling you the plain truth. When you forget that fact, you're going to forget a lot of other things that makes you unuseful for the Lord. But when that grips your heart, when you center your mind and heart upon that fact, it will make you to be one who can't do anything other than try to serve the Lord Jesus. Paul, in his mind, very readily considers the glory of Christ's love, which was the reason for the Lord Jesus to come to redeem us. He came to take the place of his people. That's what's being said. And in some measure, we might also say that he came that we might take his place. I do not speak of his place in the Godhead, but his place as those who would gaze on the infinite glory of God with nothing hidden. Our place, when we stop and we think about it, we have to say it was a place of poverty and destitution in every way. I want to underscore that. Before we are the Lord Jesus' people, we are in a place of utter poverty and destitution in every part of our life. There was nothing and is nothing if we're not in the Lord Jesus that has any value in the sight of righteous eyes. We, as sinners before Christ saved us, We're less than paupers. 
We were less than beggars. We were an abomination. I wish we would understand that. We were an abomination to God before the Lord Jesus did his work of mercy. And I say, do not forget that there is nothing commendable about you in the sight of God. To think that you have a sliver of some good that you can make yourself comfortable with, something good about yourself, I say for you to consider that is to drink from the devil's cup of absolute delusion. We live in utter shambles before we're saved and we are bound with unbreakable shackles. In contrast, the Lord Jesus took our utter destitution and our being an abomination to God and in its place left us the possessors of the entirety of the kingdom of heaven and in fact made the Lord himself our inheritance. You think about those words in Psalm 16. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. The Lord himself is my inheritance now because of what the Lord Jesus did. When he made me to be what he was and was made what I was, heaven became my inheritance. It doesn't say so in the Beatitudes that those who are blessed, whose inheritance is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, but more so, blessed are those whose inheritance is the Lord himself. Indeed, Christ taking our place and we taking his are the key to understanding the nature of justifying work of the Lord. If you want to understand what's justification, you think upon this. We have referred to this work of his taking our place and our taking his by this term very often. You've heard me speak of it numbers of times. We call it double imputation. There, I say, is perhaps the center of the gospel. Paul, in this discourse, describes the subject in a way that we do not see in other places. He deals with the matter of the imputation of Christ by showing that Christ was the possessor of wondrous riches, riches that are here bound to the graces of the Lord. We are described as nothing other than the penniless paupers, or better yet, lepers Christ came to take us from that awful death and to lay upon us his wondrous glory and everlasting righteousness so magnificent is the theme of this portion that one night when Charles Spurgeon was to stand up to preach and he was very weak and very fatigued in fact very ill He stated to his congregation before he started preaching on this text that he wished, he says, I wish that I could just rest on this text and just bathe myself in its refreshing splendor. In other words, he says, I wish I could just stop and think about this. You folks can sit there and watch while I ponder what Jesus has done for me. That's what my soul needs. 
And I would suggest along with him, there is nothing as spiritually invigorating as the laying hold again on the truth that Christ was made what I was. And I possess all that he owns. And again, I want us to understand this scripture does not say that Christ just became poor, but rather he became poor as I was. It is poverty in kind. Think about that. Poverty in kind. As poor as I was, that's what he became. As shameful in the sight of God was that I was, that's what he became. As condemned as I was, that's what he became. And so also, I am not made just rich with God, but I am made as rich as Christ. It is a wealth in kind. Now may these thoughts guide us as we consider this text today. I have just a couple of things I want to consider with you. But I stress to you this morning that the imputation of Christ's riches to us and our poverty to him is essential for you to understand if you're going to go on with God, if you're going to know the peace of God, if you're going to have any joy in your life. You've got to understand this truth. So I've got two things I'm going to ask and point out. I want you to consider with me. Consider. The first is the meaning of Christ being made poor. What does that mean? Christ being made poor. Well, Hughes in his commentary on Second Corinthians makes the comment, this is not a quote, but this is a paraphrase. He says, this passage forever puts to rest the question of Christ's pre-existence. Not only was he, but he was in a state of glory and blessing. The state that the dispensationalist wants to argue he received only after he returned to heaven as a successful redeemer. That puts all that to rest. Christ was in glory. What he possessed before he came here is what I possess. This thought ought to be that which calms and quiets forever. Those notions that Christ did not receive glory until he went back as a successful savior. He had it. I get it. Matthew Henry also makes a comment. He says, oh, please understand that Christ did not just become a, a, a man for us, but he became a poverty stricken man for us. Because he took what we are. Well, we might ask, in what ways was he made poor? Well, first, I want us to think on this thought. That he was made poor in his condescension. In his condescension, he became poor. Now, I'm about to mention a thought for which there's no real way to understand the the framework for it. There's no way to grasp what we're dealing with here when we talk about the condescension of Christ. I will simply put it in this terms and perhaps the Lord will bless it and cause us to be able to get a little bit of a glimpse. The scriptures tell us in John's Gospel, chapter 1, it tells us again in Colossians that the Lord Jesus was that one of the Godhead that created all things. And he didn't just create all things, but he created it in perfection. To the point that God rested after giving his verdict on what was created, and it was very good. 
Now, when infinite, holy, perfect God says it is very good, how good is that? When Christ created, it was perfect creation. Now, I always say this, the glory and the splendor of this work cannot be understood, for we do not behold creation anymore the way that it was at the first. Creation was afflicted by Adam's sin. Creation was ruined by Adam's sin. It was polluted. It was made destitute. But you say, well, there's still things that are beautiful. Yes. Even in that, there is some ways in which the handiwork of God reflects the glory of God. And all creation does still speak to the glory of God. It cannot do otherwise. Understand that man is different from creation generally. Creation still must glorify God. Even if it's groaning to be renewed. Even if it has the desire to put off that which came upon it by Adam's failure and sin. Creation must glorify God. The heavens do declare the glory of God. And I say every fragment of this creation, as the Lord Jesus said on that day when he entered into Jerusalem, creation would actually cry out. The stones would cry out. They can't do that. You would hear the stones crying out, so to speak, if these people who were not or who were praising did not do as they were doing. His glory is readily seen in the handiwork of God by all that is except fallen man who sits in his death stupor. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He will not glorify God. He will not acknowledge God. There is none that seeketh God. There is none that doeth right. No, not one. The point is that the Lord Jesus lowered himself to come to his creation in the form of one created. And again I say in the form of one created. I don't say that he laid aside his deity. He came to this world that was now corrupted and made vile. He came in the form of one that was created. He came to a creation that was ruined. He came to the filth of mankind and the wasteland of man's existence. Creation that was very good had become darkly evil. And the Lord Jesus came to this place. He was made poor. You might, you might in your mind think of it like the Lord Jesus created this beautiful creation in absolute perfection. You might wonder how would he react? How would his divine heart feel as he came to the place of ruin? Well the point is he came to a willing demotion. He condescended willingly. I am come to do the will of God he says. His poverty is seen in his condescension. He was gloriously before the eyes of God and all of heaven 
And he comes to this ruined place. His poverty is also seen in that his life reflects it. In his life he became poor from start to finish. We may say that the Lord Jesus came to this earth as a poor man. In fact, he may be looked upon as the poorest of the poor. You think about the Lord's life. He was born in a stall with oxen around him. He even had to borrow the crib from the oxen. He didn't borrow it from him. He borrowed the crib from the oxen. He used their feeding trough as a crib. He borrowed clothes, swaddling clothes. The Lord Jesus grew up in a very humble home. When he was a man, the only thing that he could call his own was his one garment. For the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. For the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He had to borrow a tomb. The Lord Jesus tells us plainly that he came to be a servant of servants. You know the world has no problem with a destitute Christ. The unsaved don't have a problem with thinking of Christ in this way. The example that he shows in his worldly poverty is in their pretense admired. Wasn't it wonderful what he did? And I say this is true as long as that poverty keeps Christ in the place of weakness where he would hold no authority over him. Men aren't hesitant to look at Christ that way. The point though... Christ did not possess anything that the world would, would use to accuse him of ease and pleasure. He didn't even have an appearance that the world could make an accusation against. For there's no form or comeliness in him that when we should see him that we should desire him. He had come to the poor, but not just the poor in the physical sense. He took the utter destitution of our lives spiritually when he came to Calvary's cross. Well, the Lord Jesus had no desire for possessions. There was nothing that he had to offer but grace and truth, he says in John chapter 1, which is the call of repentance and to believe in the gospel. The Lord Jesus was also poor in his work. And I say, here's the answer to why Christ did come. He came to be made poor. Before God, as poor as we are. He came to take our place. He came to be made what we are. That we might be what he is. He came in his work to do this. And we see this in all that his work entailed. First, you might point to the denunciation by men. The Lord Jesus endured the derision of mockers. As he walked, as he healed, as he ate. (laughs) With the people that he ate with. He was scorned. He was reviled. How can this be? 
How could this be? How could men revile the Lord Jesus when he comes speaking grace and truth, healing, restoring, forgiving? Well, the reason was all the accusations that were against the Lord Jesus were based on that which was utterly false. False. There was no truth in them that mocked him. But we might also go the other side the coin and say he made him made him was wanting that and men did not give it to him no he came and said I'm not going to be of any reputation you know these verses Isaiah 53 verse 3 he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we did as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not. And verse 12 says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was accounted as a transgressor. But he did that willingly. Willingly. Well, I say the natural man did not receive him. It's not the natural response of the world to love and honor Christ. No, the world's going to despise the true Christ. Also, he was poor in that he was in himself even though doing the very work of God he ended up being that one because he was associated with us in union with us that was ultimately condemned by God he was condemned by man but we'd have to shrug our shoulders and say well what is really that I mean so what he wasn't condemned just by men he was condemned by God as you are condemned by God before you come to Christ he made himself poor by laying aside the love of the father he became the curse, the hated thing. Oh, here's the ultimate poverty. He became the hated thing of God, the object of the Lord's wrath. The very justice of God's law was against him. So that the heart of God was set for his condemnation. Yet it pleased. No, we can't hardly begin to fathom the depths of this statement. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Do you see what that says? There, here's the poverty of Christ. Here's how low the Lord Jesus was brought. That it pleased the Father to bruise him. The utter condemnation that you and I should bear and again here's a warning to sinners keep it in mind if you will refuse Christ what is said of Christ here will be true of you eventually it will please the father to bruise it will please the father to condemn it will please the father to turn aside not because he is a tyrant and a mean one but because his justice demands righteous judgment The Lord Jesus was in union with us. So he became, as we might say, poor in righteousness. Huh? Yes, because he took our sins upon him. Because he took his, our sins upon him. And think about it in this context. Because he took our sins upon him, he came short of the glory of God. He was in poverty. He did not have what it was needing to have to be able to be accepted to God. Why? Because he bore our sins. He must be condemned. And think of it this way too, that no man stood with him in all of this. 
nothing could help. He gave all up. Why? Why did he do all this? Why did he put himself in the place where he was not only denounced and derided and despised by men, but really to the point where the Father's pleasure was to strike him, to smite him? Why did he do all this? Well, verse 8 of Isaiah 53, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. He did it for your, your sake. He did it for your sake. Oh, understand, Christ did not suffer and endure that suffering in hope that someone might be saved. He endured it that you would be saved. Think about it. Christ did not suffer that somebody might be saved. Christ suffered particularly because he was looked at as your sin, your filth. He became what you are particularly and totally that you might be freed, that you might be saved. I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't say I'm coming to hopefully seek and maybe try to save some that maybe, well, if they get themselves turned around in their thinking will be oh no 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 he bore our poverty that we might be made those who are righteous in the sight of God again let me say it must be emphasized there is no noble man in view for whom Christ stood as substitute nobody that Christ stood in their stead is a noble man or as a well, mostly good man. No, sir. He came to save sinners, as Paul says, of whom I am the chief. Only morally destitute sinners. Christ came for your sake. And I say, let that be branded in your memory. Think about that. Christ Jesus became poor as you are. Now, second point. What is the meaning of the believer being made rich? Well, I s submit this to you for your thinking. As he was poor in exactly the way in which you and I are poor, we are made rich in exactly the way in which he is rich. As I said a moment ago, imputation, the doctrine of imputation is the heart of the gospel. But at the same time, it is the truth with which we struggle more than any other when it comes to the practical issues of life. I think the people of God, though they will say, I believe in imputation, I believe it entirely, you don't let it get down into your heart and your thinking when it comes to the days of your lives, I'm afraid. And I say this is one thing. That we just don't give ourselves to understanding. There's, I, I, I have to step back and I have to recall our brother Mark Allison, who's now with the Lord. And one thing that he has been known for all his life is that he loved to preach on the doctrine of justification. And his thought was, 
Because this, above all things, when you understand that you're justified, that Christ was made your sin, you are now in possession of his righteousness, you are made just in the sight of God, as Christ is, it'll transform your life. It'll transform your life. And again, I say to you this morning, if you're struggling in any way with your heart or your spiritual mind, perhaps you need to take a step back and remember this particular truth. What did Christ Jesus bear for you? How much of what you are wrestling with did he bear away? How much did he pay for? How well did he pay for it? And then, what do you have now? Is Do you think that what you have received from Christ could be made better if only you could be this or that much more of whatever it is you think that you should be? I say we grasp to a degree being made poor and wearing the torment of sin, for we've been there. But we have great difficulty living in the light of the truth that we now possess the riches of Christ. Here is, I say, the fallacy of the fallen heart consistently warring against your mind and your heart. We all, every one of us, and by the way, some have even made this into the foundation of their religious beliefs. But we have trouble with what I'm talking about, that we are now accepted in the sight of God because we insist on imposing our merit into the situation. Oh, I believe that Jesus paid for my sin, and I believe that he's made me to be a son with God, but, you know, I think the Lord's going to really answer my prayer today because, you know, I, I, I just really have given myself to this. Or the reason he's not understanding me and he's not answering my prayers because I, well, hold on, let me go back and get out my, my, my little uh, pocket tablet with all the things that I've just listed here. Here's the things, the reasons why God should... There's something that we insist on imposing ourselves into the picture for. I want you to think about it with me this way. The meaning of the believer being made rich. First, possessed is now mine. The righteousness that Christ possessed is not is now mine. He has not made me righteous after a fashion. He has not made me righteous mostly. He has not made me righteous almost entirely. He has made me not even righteous altogether. But he has made me righteous as he is righteous. Do you see that perhaps you could say, well, I could be made righteous as somebody who never sinned ever once in their life. Still, you wouldn't possess the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, let's understand that we wear the name of the righteous man before God. Well, who is the righteous man? The Lord Jesus. We bear his name. That name that he laid aside to assume our name. And to take upon himself all the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. You know, you think about this. Your, your moral report card. <laughs> if you can think of such a thing. Your moral report card has your name at the top. What's happened with that? Now, how many things can we say moral? I mean, I'm not talking just about 
what the world might say. This is immorality. I'm saying in every way in which you have broken the law of God from the first day that you ever had the air come into your nostrils until the last day when it goes back out again, that entirety, let's grade you now based on how well you have fulfilled the law of God and done all things that are righteous. How stands your moral report card? Do you understand that the statement in Colossians chapter 2 is that the Lord Jesus took that and nailed it to his cross. In other words, he says, that's mine. That's mine. And now you have what I have had. Mr. Spurgeon says the following. Oh, brethren... What a reputation Christ has given us now. He has given us the reputation which he threw away. For now we are righteous in his righteousness. We are comely in the comeliness which he puts upon us. We have a name and a place now better than that of sons or daughters. We are now not reckoned among the guilty, but among the godly. We are not numbered among the rebellious strangers, but among the obedient children. Oh, blessed be the name of Jesus. He hath clothed us with honor because he clothed himself with shame. It's been said it's not the place of a son to stand weeping and mourning as one on the corner who has no home. But I'm afraid that you and I oftentimes find ourselves doing that very thing. We don't understand that we have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. We want to add our righteousness to it somehow. I'm going to be very frank. Be very careful are trying to add to the work of the Lord Jesus by bringing your merits to God it's a blasphemous thing you dishonor Christ second I would say this we are rich because the love that Christ had with the father is now mine not only the righteousness but the love that was between father and son is now mine Now, I say this is hard to comprehend. You say, why so? Well, because of this. And and see if I'm not right. We oftentimes, at least in my experience in life, judge the love of God on the basis of how we feel at the moment or how well things are going. Well, I know God loves me because... I'm happy today. H-A-P-P-Y. Exclamation point. But if I'm U-N-H-A-P-P-Y, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, then God doesn't love me. Oh, I wish he could love me. How silly. How wrong. 
We must get away from our thinking that we are loved of God because of ourselves. Because we are not. Now that's, that might put a pin in your balloon of pride. I was going to say, sorry, but I'm not. The love of ours, the love of God is ours now as it is Christ's and for his sake given to us. If you'd like, I'm going to read a short segment from John chapter 17. If you'd like to turn there and read with me. John chapter 17, verse 20. Think about what the Lord Jesus is saying here. The message, really, that's being relayed here. John chapter 17, verse 20. This is the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Verse 20 says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which have, shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, and that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory for thou hast given me, or excuse me, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here you have it very plainly said by the Lord Jesus that the same love that the Father had for him is the love that he is desiring to be known by us. Not that God loves us, but that he loves us as he loves Christ. What a difference there is there. Oh, I wish the Lord loved me well. When you stop there, you start imposing upon that statement or that thought your merits. But when you take that and step back and say, I, I want to know that the Lord loves me as he loves Christ. You're... Christ is the reason why God loves us. And he is not only, he is the degree to which God loves us. We are loved because Christ made me rich in himself. And I am as rich in the love of God as he is. There's the point. We are made rich in the righteousness of Christ. We are made rich in the love of God through Christ. We are also made rich in the resources of the Father's throne. Our 
text, verse 9, starts with the words, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know things which are seen from the hand of God as helps, as strengths, as blessings, as fruits, as joys. You know all these things. Why? Because the Lord Jesus became poor that you might be rich. Possession of these I might ask you this, this question. Where do we find grace to help in time of need? You know that answer? Where do we find grace to help in time of need? Well, you say, I think somebody said in Hebrews, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne. You're on target. I want you to understand, I was once a stranger to the throne of God. And to the mercy seat. That is now my rightful come. I am now just made rich that I can come to the throne of God at any time with any plea, with any problem, with any desire, with any need. I can come to Him, and it is my rightful place to be. Indeed, I may call upon the infinite power of God to help me and give grace. I may walk and serve in the fullness of Christ's merit. I may truly commune as Christ did with the Father. I can commune with God. The veil is rent. There's the mercy seat. I can come in and I can have a time with God and He with me. I can know the truth of that statement. Where the Lord Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And he's not just saying this to sinners. In fact, I don't think that's the context of it at all. I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open to me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. There you have the Lord Jesus saying, I'm willing to have communion with you. I'm willing to have a time with you. I'm willing to fellowship with you. I'm willing to have my spirit minister to you. The Father gives us the means of graces. He gives us the effects of graces. He gives us the rewards of graces for Jesus' sake. And again, I think that's one reason why the Lord was so emphatic. If you shall ask anything in my name. Why? Because we have been made what Christ is to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. One little quick passing thought. You're also made rich in this, that the everlasting life that Christ possesses is now yours as well. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, my, my father's hand. My father and I are one. Death has now lost all hold on you, child of God, if you're in Christ Jesus. He has made you rich and that he has given you everlasting life. That is his gift of joy to you. I was poor unto death, but now all I have is the glory of life ahead. A life in the presence of the Father, being able to see the Father, and by the help of my God, to be able to love my God in the fashion that Christ loved the Lord God the Father. I 
will always be finite, for we are all created. I can only say that in measure I will love the Lord all my eternal days. It will be in measure, but it will also be in fashion as Christ loves the Father. It will be pure. It will be holy. It will be with all my being. You know the first and great commandment you and I have to struggle with so much Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. You know, you and I can't do that. We can't even begin to do that. But you know, there's coming a day in which we will. Because of the Lord Jesus making us rich, adding to us that which is needful by his grace and union with him. So again, my point to you is to boil it down to this. That the key of joy and peace is not, and I put those letters in capitals, is not to consider self and our impressions of self. Reverse again for this month. Does anybody know that? Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. There's the point. Your peace, your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment, your opportunities come when your mind is fastened on your God and not yourself. And so the admonition is keep your mind on the Lord Jesus. Keep your mind on the Lord Jesus. And the answer to the question, what did he take upon himself for me? And what has he given to me that I am able to enjoy? You keep your mind on this text. You keep your mind on this thought. This is where the rubber meets the road. So to speak, as far as you're going on with God and knowing the joy of Christ in your heart. In fact, he said, didn't he not? I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Can I uh, supply an alternate word there? That you might have it more richly. Here's the heart of the gospel. Christ gave. Paul uses this then. As the motivation for us. To give. We give. In the way that Christ gave. And we'll find the joy of the Lord. Well, amen. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts today for Jesus' sake. Let's all pray. Our Father and our God, now we would pray that you will let the word of God do its work in us. Pray that you will continue to use it as we even leave this place. Oh God, continue with us through thy day. May your spirit work in our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.